morning. All right. I have this morning the privilege uh, to preach the word to you today. The passage that we'll be looking at comes from Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 to 32. I'll give you a moment to turn to your Bibles. Matthew chapter 21, verse 28 to 32. This is the word of God. And this is Jesus speaking to the Pharisees. He says, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father and our gracious God, Father of light, we ask at this time that as we look into the marvelous, mysterious, and the depths of your word, we ask, Father, that your light may shine down upon us, both as an act of grace, that you may call out to us and remind us once again our need for a Savior and the comfort of knowing that we have already received him in Christ Jesus but that we also ask that your light may penetrate our resistant and our hearts of stone so that you may soften it, so that we may be able to listen and that we may be able to hear and not see this word merely as another weekly dose of just getting our feel-good in for the week, but rather help us to see that this is our reality, a reality of our need, a reality of our brokenness, but also the reality of the salvation in which you provide. So be with us now, and in Christ's name we pray, amen. For those of you who don't know me, my name is John Choi, and I am the pastoral assistant here at Mercy Hill. And for some of you who do know me, I have um, a little daughter. Her name is Alicia. And I, I tell you, I mean, you guys see the, the smile, goofy, and playful side of her, and she is. But the last two years have been full of both joy and a lot of difficulty. And I say this very, with with a lot of humility, because we only have one kid. And I know a lot of you guys have more than one kid. But since being a parent for the first time, it's been, it's been great. I've got, gotten to know her better. She's grown up to be this actual human being with her own personality. At the same time, I've also been able to see um, and learn a lot about myself. And I've realized, and I've quickly learned, that one of the greatest joys of being a parent is having an obedient child. And some of you parents may agree with me, whether your children are toddlers like mine or whether your children are full-grown adults, there's nothing more sweet than a child who listens to you. And so what is, what is more is frustrating when you see a child who doesn't obey 
you know, how much more do we see a child who says yes, as we see in this parable, a child who says yes but ends up not doing it, whether it's, you know, go wash your dishes or go clean your room. And many a time they'll say, I'll do it, later to find out that they don't do it. And rarely do we actually see a child who says, who, who says no in the beginning and actually does it at the end. But what, what is rare for me is that I can't really... Um, I can't really sympathize for either of these children because as some of you parents may know, Alicia's at an age where she's no from the beginning and no all the way to the end. But you don't have to be a parent to know that the ideal child is not seen in our parable. And as much as I love Alicia, she's not the ideal child either. But the ideal child is the one who says yes from the beginning and who says yes to the end. And in our passage today, we see two examples of children who aren't ideal, both in their own way. But before we get into what the parable actually means and see how it applies to our own lives, I want to I share a little context of where we find our passage this morning. In Matthew chapter 21, earlier in the chapter, we see what is called the triumphant or triumphal entry of Jesus coming into Jerusalem. He's finished up his ministry, and now he's finally turned his gaze to Jerusalem to do what he's ultimately came to do, and that is to die for sinners. And before, he, before this climactic moment of Jesus dying on the cross, he actually engages in multiple conversations with the Pharisees or other teachers of the law, and he does so by sharing a lot of parables, and this one here today is one of them. And the point of the parable is that Jesus wants to sh share a short and simple story to uncover profound truths. He wants his listeners to see, to, to have a clearer understanding of who they are. He wants them to have a clearer understanding of who God is, but he also wants them to have a clearer understanding of their relationship with God. And so upon hearing these parables, it's not just a story where you just kind of let it pass you by. But after hearing the story, it actually puts the ball in the listener's court and it forces them to respond. Will you, in fact, recognize your place and that your relationship with God is broken and it is not right? And will you respond by humbly confessing that and turning to him? Or will you respond by continuing to live your life in opposition to him? And this is what this parable this morning is supposed to do. By seeing these two sons, it, it not only, Jesus is not only asking the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that he's speaking to in his time, but even 2,000 years later, here in Glassboro, here in Mercy Hill, here in this building, at this morning, he's also asking us, what is your relationship like with God? Which one of these sons do you represent? So with this time together this morning, I want to take a closer look at these two sons by asking two questions. First, for each son, I want to ask the question, what is the son's failure? What is the son's failure? And secondly, in light of their failure, how must they respond? So we'll get right into it. The first son, the first son, I, I like to call him the rebellious son, right? So what is his failure? In verse 28, we see that the father goes to the first son, the rebellious son, and tells him, son, go and work in the vineyard. 
It's important to know that the father is not suggesting. It's not a question. Rather, it is a clear command. Son, I want you to go. This is what you're supposed to do. Let me read from the, uh, verse 28. He says, son, go and work. So it's a clear commandment. And yet just as clear as the commandment is, so is the son's response is also clear by saying, no, I will not. He says it in such a way that there are no excuses. He doesn't say, I'm busy. There are no qualifiers. You know, I'll, I will go if you do this for me. It's just pure disobedience. And the fa- so the failure of the first son, the rebellious son, is disobedience. He has a complete disrespect for his father's authority, a complete disinterest in his relationship and he, has a comp- he can care less about the Father, let alone his command. Now, we don't have to be experts of Jewish first century, second century culture uh, or father-son dynamics to know the magnitude of this disobedience. Sometimes I like to go on YouTube. I- I've recently deleted it because sometimes I like to go on YouTube more often than not. But on YouTube, there's, I-, I can't explain why this happens, but there's these challenges that go on, and there's, um, there's compilations of different examples of these challenges, but one challenge in particular is called the shut up mom challenge. Exactly. And so, and, and so this is how it goes. It's a video recording of, uh, 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 it's actually a video recording of the father, and the mom asks the, the child, the son or the daughter, to go do something. Go finish your homework, go, go clean the dishes, and the point is that the child is supposed to respond with an over-the-top no, you know, with maybe a little bit more color in, in it. And the point is to see how the father would respond. And without fail, you can go watch it for yourself, without fail, regardless of the age of the father, the race of the father, or the culture, it doesn't matter. It's always the same response. The father stops what he's doing. He gets up from his seat. Either he sternly in silence walks towards the child or sometimes you'll see the father in full sprint to the child before the mom has to stop the dad from killing the child and saying, no, it's just a joke. The point I'm trying to make is this. We don't have to be experts in Jewish culture or any culture for that matter that there is great gravity to being disobedient to your father or to your parent. And if that's true, if we see that there is great, severe punishment due to disobeying your earthly father, how much more is due to us for being disobedient to our heavenly father? You know, in Jewish society, they identified certain individuals to fit this rebellious son. Later on in verse 31 and 32, we actually see some of these examples. We see that it's the prostitutes and the tax collectors the scum of society, the ones that the society looks down upon to be the the epitome of what it means to be in rebellion of God. But I think the danger here is to to say that there is particular groups of people you know, maybe with, with our own selves or in our own society, we even have our own list of what the rebellious son looks like. Maybe in our day and age, what's, what's more appropriate now is, is 
Maybe, maybe people who do abortions, or maybe people who support abortions. Maybe on our list is people who invade helpless, who invade other countries and invade helpless people. Or maybe we have our own individual lists of what this rebellious son looks like. But I think the danger is this, that we have a list for ourselves and that we conveniently remove ourselves from thinking that we are also the rebellious son. You see, the point here of being the rebellious son is not a certain magnitude or certain quality of rebellion, but it's any rebellion against the father that puts us in a place to say that we also are the rebellious son. When we are anxious, are we not saying no to God? Are we not saying no? You don't have control over my life. When we covet, are we not saying what good gift you give to me is not good enough? When we look at our circumstances in life, are we not saying, God, your plan isn't good? Or when we fall into the various trappings of our desires, are we not saying, God, you cannot satisfy me? And if this is so, are we not also deserving of the same consequences of disobedience to an almighty God? And so if that is the rebellious son's failure in disobedience, how must he respond to his failure? Jesus, after telling this parable at the end, he says, he turns to the religious leaders and he asks, which of these two sons does the will of the father? And it's very clear, and they know. First, obviously the rebellious son does not do what the father uh, desires in his initial response, but it does say that he eventually does what the father asks him. Let's read verse 29 together. This is what it says. And he answered, the first son, he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and he went. He begins with blatant disobedience, but it says that he changed his mind and he went to the vineyard. Now, this word changing his mind in the original Greek, I won't get into the technicalities of it, but the root word has a similar understanding or similar definition of the word repentance. But I think changing his mind Changing his mind is more appropriate because it colors a more vivid understanding of what's happening. He changes his mind because first, he recognizes for himself who he is and what his response means. He also maybe changed his mind of his view of his father. And ultimately, he changed his mind and thought about his response to his father. So yes, it's repentance, but it's deeper than that. It's not merely words. He thinks about it. He thinks about the gravity of his disobedience. And to that, he changes his mind and is obedient. And though he's not the ideal son, it is the first son who does the father's will. Because even though every person's relationship with their heavenly father is marked by disobedience, it is our father's desire to always is this his desire for his children to recognize their sin, have a change of mind, and repent and do ultimately what the Father desires. He wants them to trust in him, to do as he commands, 
and ultimately have a right relationship with him. And I think this is where the more famous parable of the two sons, the prodigal son, shows the heart of the father a little bit better than what this parable does. In Luke, in Luke chapter 15 in the prodigal sons, it shows that the father's response is that he doesn't dwell or even think about the son's rebellion. But when the son recognizes and changes his mind, repents and comes back home, the father's response to his repentance is to receive him graciously and love him abundantly. You see, no matter how heinous our sins were, are, and will be, and no matter how people around us view us, or maybe, in fact, no matter how we view ourselves, there is no sin that can separate us from the love of the Father. There is no sin too disgusting that when we repent that the Father will not open up His arms and receive us. Likewise, for us today, Though we equally rebel against our Heavenly Father, our Father's desire, even this morning, is for us to turn from our sin, repent, and fall into the arms of the Father who is waiting for us to receive us. Scripture reminds us to behold the Creator God and see that our sins is a failure and refusal to honor Him and that's why daily we repent. Even this morning, Elder Adam said, we come together as a corporate confession of sin because we recognize our sins as a group, but we ought to also have our confession of sin daily in our individual prayers, in our individual lives. As Martin Luther famously said, the entire life of the believer is one of repentance daily repentance and there is great joy in our repentance because though god is holy and just he is also a god who is merciful he is slow to anger and he desires to save rather than to punish let's now look at the second son i like to call him the religious son so we have the rebellious son now we have the religious son if the first son's failure is disobedience what is the second son's failure? Jesus continues the parable in verse 30. As with the first son, the father turns now to the second son and asks, not asks, he, he commands him to go and work in the vineyard. And what's interesting is that this son, he actually answers by saying, I will. Rather, to be more specific, he actually says, I will, sir. Now, at first glance, this addition of saying, sir, may just, you know, we may just glance over it, or we may think that it's not that important. But I think it's, I think it actually has some value. I think Jesus purposely says to, for this second son, and adds the sir. And partially it's because this word sir in the Greek is the same word that we see in the Greek Bible to be used when addressing God. It means Lord. It can be used for children and their, uh, to, to their fathers back in, in the time, but it's most commonly used for when addressing God as Lord. And I think it's purposeful because, remember, Jesus is talking to the religious leaders. So when using this word, the word is curie. When using the word, I think the religious leaders would have recognized that this son, he knows what to say. He knows the right word. He knows the right actions. This guy has it all down. 
He knows all the do's and he knows all the don'ts. And I think what Jesus is trying to do is to say that this guy, this second son, he knows all the right things, but he has no intentions of doing any of it. So what is his failure? The religious son's failure is his pride and his confidence that he has in himself. And knowing the right things and saying the right things, being with the right people. Going back to the, the, the illustration of our kids. It's the kid who says, um, I want you to do your homework before, uh, before I come back from the store. And they already know the right answer. Don't worry, I, I was already going to do that. Right? We never have kids like that. Or, or it's, it's, I want you to share that piece of cake with your younger sibling. And it's the, it's the child who says, oh, don't worry, I'll give him the bigger piece. Of course, no one ever really says that. But it's the son who knows the right things to say. He knows what the parent is asking of him or her. You see, the religious son describes a person who does the right things, knows the right things, but the problem is, as I said, he has no care for the father. Because his sense of righteousness, his sense of being the good son comes from his ability to do it well. We find a detailed description of this religious son later on in chapter 23 when Jesus exposes these religious leaders of knowing and saying the right things. And yet Jesus says to them, and yet you do not, even though you do the right things, you do not do the things that are more important. You do not do the things that what really matters, which is to advocate for justice to show mercy and be faithful to God. And what Jesus calls them, he calls them whitewashed tombs. On the outside, they are pristine. On the outside, they have no blemish. They do all the right things, go to all the right places at all the right times, say all the right things, hang out with all the right people. But on deep down inside, they're dead. They're spiritually dead, emotionally dead and completely detached from the Father. Maybe for us, what it looks like is we go to the Bible studies. We never miss one. We go to Sunday. We catechize our kids with the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We, 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 we hang out with the right crew. Right? We, we take comfort, and dare I even say, they take comfort in being in an amazing denomination, in an amazing church, and sit under amazing teaching and the right preaching. But we attach ourselves to these things on the exterior. But when we go home, we're completely devoid of the things that we so desperately cling on to. We use those things as a means to puff ourselves up. Use those things as a means to put ourselves in the forefront and put God in the background. I want to be sure when I say all this, I, I'm not saying religious activity, religion, being pious, being faithful to God. These are not bad things. Woe would be to me if I say that these are bad things. What I am saying is this. If those things are the very means that you feel right before God by doing those things well and having confidence that you do those things well, that your sense of righteousness and being a right son or daughter before God is because you do those things well, that is a problem. That is a danger. 
So how is he supposed to respond? How must he respond? How are we to respond to this failure of falling into the trappings of being a religious son? In verse 32, Jesus reminds the religious leaders that John the Baptist came and he spoke of the way of righteousness. You know, if we look back to uh, Matthew's gospel in chapter 3, we see exactly the message that John brought. And he speaks of the way of righteousness and it's simple. It says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. How is he supposed to respond? How are we who are religious to respond? We are to repent. Now, I know you might be thinking, wait a second. You're telling me the way the second son is supposed to respond is the same way that the first son is to respond? It seems like it's the same thing. And you're right. It's because in, in a sense, both sons are in rebellion against the father. You see, the first son, his rebellion is more apparent, right? It's harder to hide. The second son's rebellion is more subtle. But you see, it's the prideful who rebel against the idea of trusting in God. It is those who are self-righteous who rebel against the idea of having any need of a God. And it's those who say and do all the right things that rebel against the idea that anyone, let alone God, will tell them what is right or wrong. See, the proper response of the religious son is the same as the rebellious son because he too needs to repent and turn from his own rebellion. And I find this second son, I, my heart goes out to him. My heart goes out to him as in even when I am this rebellious son, because uh, the religious son, because you, you see, it's much harder to see our sins when we are the religious son. You see, it's much harder because we have a harder time seeing them. It's easier for the quote-unquote rebellious tax collectors, you know, the criminals, right, the prostitutes. It's easier for them to see their sins. Maybe in our day and age, it's the, it's the alcoholics or, or it's the adulterers. It's because for us, when we do the right things, we don't abuse our kids. We go to church every day. We don't struggle with alcohol or drugs or struggle with social media or binge watch Netflix every day or whatever your addiction may be. Maybe for us, we don't cheat on our taxes. We don't cheat on our spouses. Our lives are in order. If that is us, it is very difficult for us to see our sin. And here's the problem. If you don't see your sin, then you don't see a need to repent. And it's like the overarching theme of any zombie movie or, or comic. It's the idea that it's, it's not the zombies that you need to watch out for. Why? Because it's pretty clear who's a zombie. It's pretty clear who's dead. The ones that you need to watch out for are the healthy ones because they can hide it. You know, it's a blessing to have a wife who didn't go to Westminster Seminary, who doesn't read systematic theology and study for licensure and ordination like I do. It's a blessing because to have a wife daily show me the inconsistencies of my orthodox faith 
and my lack of orthopraxy or right living is a blessing for someone to show me that inconsistency on a daily basis. And whether or not that's true for you, whether you're an elder, whether you're a husband, whether maybe even a wife, if you have a spouse who has that, yeah, it, it can be annoying sometimes, but I want you to count that as a blessing. And if you don't have someone like that, you have elders in your church, you have deacons, you, you have spiritual mentors here th- that are available. It may be an excruciating thing to ask of them to be a blessing in this capacity. But we remember, it is a blessing to have someone see it when you yourself refuse to see it. Brothers and sisters, this is the same challenge I do give to you this morning. It is, it is a great denomination, this, this denomination, PCA. And it is a great church who's also part of this denomination. We are a denomination in the church that fights for the purity of Scripture. We hold to the great Reformed traditions. We prioritize the gospel of Jesus every week in this church. But what tragedy would it be for those who have this many blessings treasures that God gives to us and yet in our day-to-day lives we are so far removed from those very things that we believe in the God and in the Jesus who said all is finished and we have nothing else to worry about that we are no longer condemned but we live in captivity and unable to share our burdens with our brothers and sisters who are available to us in this very room what tragedy would it be that we can lift up our hands and our hand, uh, heads and our hands and worship a great God and take comfort in the wonderful eternity that He has secured for us? And never or rarely do we turn and share this gospel truth to the dying world out there. What tragedy would it be that we can hold to this orthodoxy, right understanding of God? and yet have such lack in our orthopraxy, a right living of the very faith that we confess. I turn now to the last son, the last point. I'm sure there's a lot of puzzled looks here, thinking there's only two sons in the parable. We look at two sons in the parable, but I turn now to the third son, who I call the true and righteous son. We've seen the first son, rebellious son, the second son, the religious son. Now we turn to the true, the righteous son. He may not be in the parable, but this true righteous son, he is in the passage. You see, Jesus, Jesus is the true and righteous son that both the rebellious and the religious son are unable to attain and refuse to have with the Father. What is Jesus' failure? Jesus doesn't have any failures. In fact, Jesus is the righteous son because he does exactly what the other two sons cannot and will not do. The rebellious son disobeys Jesus, even in temptation, even though he goes through the same difficulties of this life as a human He is completely obedient to the Father from beginning to end. He does what the rebellious son cannot do. 
and where the religious son trusts in himself. Jesus, on the other hand, is the only righteous son who never trusts in himself, but he always turns to the Father, trusts in his Father's will, trusts in his Father's plan. Even later on when we see right before he is nailed on the cross, the night before he prays, Father, if you can take this cup from me, please take it away, but I will trust in you. You see, Jesus is the son that you and I cannot and will not be. He is, circling back to this idea of the ideal, ideal son. He is that ideal son that we look for. He is the one who says yes from the beginning. He is the one who says yes to the end. You see, brothers and sisters, the gospel message this morning isn't, initially it isn't, for me to tell you, now go and don't be disobedient. The gospel message is now go and don't be prideful. No, in fact, the gospel message is this. When you are disobedient and when you find yourself to find confidence in yourself and when you don't trust in God, when that does happen, when you leave here, the gospel message is this. Trust in the true and righteous son who is obedient and who does trust in his father. You see, our relationship with God is broken in and of ourselves. Even during this church service, I'm sure we've committed sins in thought, maybe even in action and word. And we will, we will do this as soon as we leave. Sin is always before us. How can we be right before God? By trusting in Jesus, the one and true righteous son. So that is my comfort and maybe even a challenge to you that you may leave here and that you may find rest and joy once again in Christ, the true righteous son, and by his righteousness, knowing that we have been made also righteous sons and daughters of God through him. As the scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. And that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this reminder, for this word in which you give to us. Though it is a mere five verses, Father, what wonderful truths in which you have shown to us. You have convicted our hearts to show how we fail and how our relationship with our Heavenly Father is broken, how we rebel against you and we go to our own vices, our own way, with complete disregard for you. Or maybe for some of us, we are the religious son. We take comfort in knowing that we are strong, we are able. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this conviction. For through this conviction, it brings us confession, and through the confession, it brings us to repentance. For those of us who still now are resisting the very truth in which we have heard, I pray, Father, that you not bring us to shame. Rather, I pray, Lord, that you may work your spirit deep within us, and that you may humble our hearts, that you may humble us,
and that your grace may compel us to repel, uh, repent. And for those of us, though difficult as it is, though we accept this conviction, I pray that we may also turn to the comfort in knowing that there is no salvation apart from you. And even now, as we prepare to sing this song, I pray that, Lord, that you may comfort us and remind us of the gospel message, that you are the Lord of our salvation. You save us from our rebellion. You save us from us being confident in ourselves through and through, in everything and everywhere and at all times. And in all things in our lives, you are our salvation. So as we now turn to this week, as we look to the loved ones around us and even our neighbors, I pray that we may take this comfort in knowing that we are named, we are claimed, we are loved and held fast to the one and true righteous Son, our Lord and Jesus, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the Church House, located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro, off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.